0: We've been making our way through Paul's epistle letter to the church at Philippi. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we've looked at struggling well, the joy of the Christian journey. In chapter 1, we saw how struggling well happens in community. We do it together. Uh, one of the things that uh, kind of feels a little weird to me is I'm trying every way I can to avoid getting COVID before Carol's surgery, and so I'm feeling like I'm distant from people that I wanna just hug you all, you know? So it's just a little bit weird that way. Uh, We struggle well in community, though. Uh, We struggle well that Christ would be proclaimed. We struggle well no matter what happens. That's chapter one. In chapter two, we struggle well, uh, well, excuse me, there's one more, struggling well without fear is also in chapter one. In chapter two, we looked at struggling well with humility, uh, considering others as more significant than ourselves. And how do we do that? We struggle well by looking to Christ and his example. Uh, is, that, is that by our own effort or not? Well, the answer is both and. It's partly our effort, partly not. Uh, it's Christ at work in us, uh, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And then we looked at two good examples in chapter 2 of struggling well, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, in chapter 3, we've looked at struggling well through no confidence in ourselves. Paul says, I'm not going to put any confidence in the things that I've been and done. And I'm going to have confidence last week through faith in Christ, uh, a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but that which… Comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then we come today to chapter 3, verses 13 through 21, struggling well through our eyes on the true prize. There's lots of things our eyes capture, lots of things that we chase after that are just mist, that's just fog. It's not substantive. It's not going to hold when everything gives way, when your life gets upset like an apple cart, Um, the fact is we have to have our eyes on the true prize, and that's where we are in chapter 3, verses 13 through 21. Now, what's happened is that Paul has done something very interesting in his letter. In chapter 2, he talks about how Christ did it. He lived it for us in his time here in the flesh while he is... Uh, he lived here humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death and God exalting him. Paul then gives his own personal testimony at the beginning of chapter three, saying, "I I have reason for confidence in the flesh if anybody does, but I'm not gonna trust that. I count it all as loss, I count it all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And now, that he's talked about Christ and he's talked about his own personal story, he comes to tell us now how we can struggle too by pressing on for, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, Philippians 3, 13 through 21. Brothers, I do not consider on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Please have a seat. In this first section, we're going to discover that we struggle well when we forget what we used to count on and strain for intimacy with God. You know, we live in a present reality, don't we? And the present reality we're living in is our goal is not yet attained. Anybody here perfect? (laughs) Anybody here exactly conformed to the image of Christ? Answer, no, we haven't got there yet. And we should be humble and realistic enough to have that perspective. And Paul has that. He says, I do not consider that I've made it my own, the it being, this idea of obtained, this place of, of total, complete completion in Christ. It hasn't happened yet. I haven't already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I press on to make it my own because... Christ Jesus has made me his own. I don't consider that I've made it my own. It, not yet, right? Though we strain mightily for this goal, we aren't there yet. And for this, in this, Paul finds a motivation to continue to press on with all his might. We might say, well, if we're not there and we're not gonna get there, why even try? Paul says, no, no, no. That's the reason that we should try all the harder because it's going to happen, It's going to happen, and so if you love Jesus, you will go and take hold of him with all your might. The only reason it's not a fool's errand is that Paul knows that Christ has taken hold of him and will not let him go. Isn't that a blessing? So how do we do that? Well, Paul says on the one hand and on the other hand. On the one hand, we forget what lies behind. Now, that's a phrase that has been misused by many Christians over centuries. It does not mean forget our past sins or forget our past hurts or forget our past mistakes. That's not what he's talking about. Now, I'm not saying that forgetting our past sins or past hurts or past mistakes is a bad thing to do. That's just not what Paul's talking about When he says forget what lies behind, he means forget all the things that we used to boast in. So it actually means the opposite of what most people have taken this verse to mean. You know, forget our hurts, forget our sins. No, no, no. He's saying forget what you have boasted in. Forget the things that one commentator calls the trophies of your past. Forget those things. In that sense, the Wonderful old hymn, The Old Rugged Cross, has something right and something wrong in its phrasing. The thing that is right about it is we do lay down our trophies. What they have wrong in that hymn is that we wait until we see Jesus in heaven and then we lay down our trophies. No, no, no. Paul says, lay them down now. (laughs) Forget what lies behind. Don't just count it as loss or even as rubbish. For Paul, this means the things that he's listed in verses 5 and 6. You know, this idea of his heritage circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. You know, he, he counts it loss. He counts it as garbage, and he's Forgetting it all. He's leaving it all behind. There are ways in which we want to hang on to our trophies, aren't there? If you were to ask the average person uh, just on the street, you know, are you going to heaven? They'll say, well, I hope so. I think so. And you ask them, why? And almost without exception, The answer that people will give is some trophy that they have in their mind. I'm basically a good person. I've tried to do good. I try to be a nice guy. Things like that. And even for genuine believers in Christ, there are things that we will hold on to that we think give us some kind of merit. And Paul says, count it as loss. Counted as rubbish. That's his personal testimony. And he says, Forget what lies behind. Forget those trophies. I had a wonderful example of that in my father in law. He was a man who had been through a lot in his life. I won't give you his biography, but uh, he grew up in a, a church uh, denomination, if you will that took a lot of boast in family heritage and in certain things that you did or didn't do that made you measure up. And in the process of that, he was set free from that bondage. And years later, people would uh, quiz him uh, about things that he could have boasted in, in terms of his conformity to that set of rules. And his response 100% of the time was, I have put that all behind me. I forget what lies behind. Only Jesus matters. So on the one hand, we forget what lies behind. On the other hand, we strain forward to what lies ahead. And by the way, this too has been misunderstood. It does not mean strain forward to new goals and ambitions. Not wrong to have new goals and ambitions, it's just not what Paul's talking about. Uh, It's not straining forward to God somehow making life less of a struggle for us, although we certainly do hope that's the case. It's not looking forward to gaining my own kingdom, or looking forward to a new righteousness of my own, or that God would grant me success in some endeavor. This is not about being all you can be in some positive mental attitude sense. No. When Paul talks here about straining forward to what lies ahead, it does mean a strain, an effort. But the effort is to embrace the righteousness that comes from God that lies up ahead in its fullness and which will only be accomplished completely in glory that's what Paul's straining forward to the intimacy of the knowledge of God the power of his resurrection Sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, is how he described it in verse 10 of chapter 3. And so in verse 14, he says, I press on. This is the second time he's used this phrase. He used it in verse 12. I press on to make it my own. He says it in more detail here in verse 14. I press on toward the goal. This is the standard of a goal or a target. He's looking for the finish line, forgetting what's happened to him in his race before this point, not focused on how other people are running. He is locked in on Jesus Christ. Press on toward the goal for the prize. The purpose is hitting the prize. And what is that prize? It is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It leads him away from terra firma to the very realm of the presence of God. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's unpack that phrase. Upward call. It's not of this world. It is not of this world's righteousness. It is not of this world's attainments. It is not of this world's values, rewards, blessings, or hopes. It is of God. That means it's a call that comes from God. It belongs to God, is ultimately directed to God, and I would say is irresistible that God will effectually make it happen. And it is in Christ Jesus. This phrase in Christ Jesus is the New Testament shorthand for what it means to be a genuine believer. You are in Christ Jesus. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that Paul talks about in verse 8. He's saying that's, that's what this is all about. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As Americans, we are in denial of death, aren't we? We try to do everything we can to kind of keep it on the fringes. We're in denial that this world is not our home. We try to fashion it after our own image and try to seek to conform it to our own Goals and values. And the prosperity gospel builds on this, doesn't it? The prosperity gospel says, You don't have to die. And it says, If you sow a seed of money to my ministry, you'll be prosperous. <laughs> what a lie. We're all going to die. What a lie. There's no such thing as giving money to one person so that you have more money in another. It's ridiculous. And yet, all over the world, people are buying into that lie. Question, where are the heavenly-minded of this generation? Where are they? Have you ever heard the phrase, they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good? You ever heard that phrase? Well, if you're heavenly-minded in the right way, that's a lie. The only way you can be of earthly good is if you are truly heavenly minded. Your eyes and heart and mind are fixed on the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God's purpose for you is not about this life, it's not about this world. He is a far bigger God than that. And quite honestly, He loves you far more than that. Jesus is determined to bring you to completion if you belong to Him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And all of the events of this life, every one of them, are in His hand in order to bring you to that place of obtaining the surpassing worth of Christ and becoming complete in Him. Just like verse 12 says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, it implies that there will be a time when He will obtain it and He will be perfect. That will happen. It just won't happen in this life. So Paul says, I strain for what I know is going to be mine one day. I strain for it. Verse 15 doesn't have this word in the ESV, but it is there. The word therefore begins this sentence. Therefore, let those of us who are mature think this way. Um, Paul moves to application of his life story. And so, The therefore is saying, now, as a result of my story, here's some ways that you need to believe and think. You should think this same way. You should have the same mentality, the same thinking that I have. This phrase, think this way, is used in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You should think this way. In the same way Jesus thought. Now he says, you should think this way. In the same way that I have thought. It's the same phrasing. And he says, if in anything you think differently. Now, when he says that, he's not talking about dying to our ambitions to gain Christ. Of course, he's, of course we should die to our ambitions to gain Christ. What he's talking about in this phrase, if anything you think differently, is probably about some other matter that is of minor consequence, if you think differently. If you think differently and you truly belong to God, God's going to let you know about that. Um, So Paul has such a friendly relationship with the Philippians that this is not so much as a warning as it is a confidence that God's work at bringing truth to them, even where they may disagree with Him on some point or another. And then he adds, let us hold true to what we've already understood. Paul's making it clear here that his previous comment about thinking differently is not about matters of ultimate importance. He's saying, on matters of ultimate importance, let's hold true to that, right? By the way, don't you find it curious, at least I have in my life, that I forget lessons that I've already learned. I forget them. I'll go through something and then I'll go, okay, now there's a lesson to learn from this. And then years later, I'll meet up with a similar circumstance, perhaps a different one, and I've completely forgotten the lesson. Paul wants people not to lose ground on these struggling well issues. For many of us in the Christian life, we learn some lessons on how to struggle well, and then we slide back and we forget the lessons, and we struggle, and then we slide back. <laughs> and, and what Paul's saying is, I, I want you to struggle well and not forget the lessons so that you keep going and moving toward that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, This raises the question, doesn't it? How can we practically grow in struggling well? How can we avoid losing sight of what we've already learned? Paul now gives a practical answer to that question in verses 17 through 19. We struggle well when we imitate others who struggle well. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's saying, look at me and see how I'm doing and then follow that, imitate that, mimic that, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, this word walk, do you see it there in verse 17? Keep your eyes on those who walk According to the example you have, that's a big Bible word, the word walk. Walk in the Bible is a word that describes quite often fellowship with God, close fellowship with God. To be sure, the word can mean literally walking down the road, but the word walk in its uh, <clears throat> more metaphorical sense is describing a manner of life that is close fellowship with God. So for example, Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God. Or Genesis 6, Noah was a righteous man and walked with God. Or Genesis 17:1, Abraham was commanded, "Walk before me and be blameless." Israel is promised blessings if they keep the commands of the Lord and walk in His ways. Deuteronomy 28. Isaiah says that the reward of seeing the King in His beauty is for those who walk righteously and speak uprightly. Isaiah 33. And Psalm 86:11 says, "Teach me Your way, O Lord, that I may walk in Your truth, or I will and I will walk." in your truth. So walk in the Bible is a word describing walking as a manner of life that is close fellowship with God. You're just walking ever closer to the Lord. And then the rabbis picked up on this, this word halak in Hebrew, to walk. It it has the idea of, of a rabbi who would walk around with his disciples he'd say follow me and they'd walk with him and then the, in many cases the followers of a rabbi were so closely tied to that rabbi that they actually imitated not only his way of life but they they imitated how he walked so if this rabbi walked with a limp all of his disciples would walk with a limp and you could tell what rabbi, a person followed quite often by the gate, the way they walked. Okay? And what Paul is saying here is not follow someone's gate or way of perambulating on foot. <laughs> what he's saying is keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Look at those people around you who really are forgetting what lies behind, straining toward what lies ahead, and and pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Look at those people and follow how they're doing it. It's why we live in community, isn't it? It's why we do life together so that we can see those examples and imitate them. Now in the case of the church at Philippi, There were two examples that were given already in the letter, right? Timothy and Epaphroditus. There probably were others in the church there that they were able to look at and go, yes, I'm going to follow that. And then Philippi, being a city on a major interstate, the Ignatian Way, there were all kinds of Christians blowing in and out of there all the time. And so they could look at various people who were walking in the same way that Paul was walking and and they'd go, yeah, I will keep my eyes on those who are walking according to the example that we have in Paul. The reason for keeping a close watch on real examples of struggling well is that many, many do not Look at verse 18, for many of whom I've often told you, that suggests by the way that they may not be in Philippi, if Paul has to tell them, may not be there, they may be somewhere else, I've often told you and I'm telling you now even with tears in my eyes about it. Paul has a deep concern that these people, perhaps, maybe actually are saying that they are believers in Christ. It may be that they used to say that they were believers in Christ, but they have, in modern terms, deconstructed their faith. Paul calls them as people who walk, their manner of life is as enemies of the cross of Christ. The point here is that from Paul's point of view, they are not true believers. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does it mean to be an enemy of the cross of Christ? Well, it means not embracing what the cross means. You know, there's a lot of people today that wear a cross. Some even say pleasant things about the cross. But one can do both those things and still be an enemy of the cross of Christ. Because what the cross says is that there is nothing that you can do that will merit eternal life. The cross says that you are an enemy of God and unless you repent of your sins and trust what Jesus did at the cross to forgive you, you will be condemned to hell forever. And the cross says that only by trusting in what Jesus did at the cross, taking your place, paying for your sin, only then will you experience eternal life with God forever. That's the cross. And Paul says, I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, many live, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why should, well, let let me just make a note. Note that to be an enemy of the cross does not mean that they are Paul's personal enemies. It's important to make that distinction because sometimes when we see someone who's not, who's an enemy of the cross, we can kind of have this kind of mentality in our mind that sets us at enmity with them. Uh, Paul has tears for these enemies of the cross, not anger, Not rejection, not hatred. Those who have deconstructed their faith deserve our tears, not our rage. Why should Paul weep over this? Verse 19 gives the answer it's because of what life lived with confidence in the flesh produces. Their end is destruction. The word end means their completion. Their completion is eternal destruction. It doesn't mean a cessation. Their end is continually destruction. They're just going to be continually destroyed. I'm glad we don't know all that that means. But Jesus said things like there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, The worm does not die. These are descriptions that from which we should flee run their end is destruction their god is their belly now obviously it may mean that they take uh, strong literal appetites but i think it's more descriptive of appetites in general they worship at the altar of self satisfaction. They worship at the altar of what feels good at the moment. They worship at the altar of fulfillment, self fulfillment. <laughs> That's what their God is. And they glory in their shame. They take delight and even pride in their confident focus on self fulfillment. They're not just chasing after. Self satisfaction, they feel no shame about it. In fact, they take pride in it. The future condition of the lost should break our hearts. The present condition of the lost should break our hearts. And the answer is not that we should hate them or that we should tell them that they are fine, that everything is well. No. The answer is that we tell them the good news of freedom by the cross of Christ. That's the answer. Now, that involves the telling of some bad news, doesn't it? It means we have to tell people that they're sinners, that they need to repent, that there is one solution, the cross of Christ, and there are no other solutions. Those are hard things to say. I'm so glad that when we met with Carol's surgeon, she told us Carol has a cancer that must be removed. It will be painful. There will be a long road of recovery. Now, she didn't say it in any gleeful or gloating way. She didn't say it in any prideful way. She said it kindly. She tried to tell the facts, she tried to answer questions, but she said what was real. And in the telling of the gospel, brothers and sisters, we must not be so afraid of what people will say to avoid telling the truth in the surgery of the soul. Now to verses 20 and 21. We struggle well when we live like we know where we belong. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven. It actually would be a better way to translate it, for our citizenship is in heaven, because this is actually an additional reason to follow Paul's example. The first reason to follow Paul's example is that many walk as enemies. The second reason is, We don't walk as enemies, our citizenship is in heaven. Follow my example because they, there are people who walk as enemies, and because our citizenship is in heaven. Now, as a Roman colony, Philippi, made much of citizenship, of Roman citizenship. Uh, There were a lot of retired Roman soldiers in Philippi, and they like to brag about their citizenship and their exploits and their military conquests. Paul says, we're already citizens of another realm. The completion comes later, but the fact is now. We are a sort of colony of heaven. We are here to represent Jesus Christ and the gospel to the world. But we do not belong to this realm. Uh, Paul gave the illustration in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are ambassadors. We're of a different country. And we have come into this country, earth, as ambassadors for Christ, as though God's making his appeal through us for people to be reconciled to God. We live as an outpost of heaven on earth. We live under the constitution under the politoima, is the Greek word here, as we are under the citizenship of heaven. Paul uses a very interesting word for the word is here in verse 20. You might not think that is is a very important word. Well, it is here. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven. He uses a different word than is mostly used in the New Testament for the word is. It means our citizenship exists. It's real. It's concrete. It is in heaven. The only other place in Philippians where Paul uses that word is in chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, who though he was in the form of God. That means he exists. It's concrete reality. Jesus is God. So, in just the same way that it's a concrete reality that Jesus is God, it is a concrete reality that our citizenship is in heaven. <laughs> and what was it that made that happen? God becoming man, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what enables us to have the concrete reality of our citizenship in heaven. We must simply comprehend if we are to understand how to struggle well here and now, that we belong to another place. I want you to consider the problems of the world in the past, over the centuries, how much death, how much dying, how much tears, how much pain, One reason why we tend not to struggle well is that human creativity and ingenuity has eliminated or shielded much of human suffering from us. So when we suffer, we tend to think that it's the unusual position of human experience when in fact it is the default position of our time here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We await a savior from our home, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to await? It means to look with anticipation. And what's fascinating here is that Paul uses two words that the Romans like to use to describe Caesar. The Romans described Caesar as soter, savior, and kurios, lord. Caesar is Savior. Caesar is Lord. Paul says our citizenship is not Roman. Our citizenship is in heaven. We await a soter, a Savior. We await a Lord. His name is Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't use the word Savior very often in his letters. In fact, if you take out Timothy and Titus, He only uses it two other times. But here he picks up on this word because he wants us to know Caesar is not Savior. The answers to our problems are not to be found in this world. They are to be found in a person from another realm. Jesus Christ. What will our Savior do? Verse 21, he will transform our lowly body. He who was found in human form will transform our lowly body. We will become like him. This phrase is using that word morphe again, which was used in chapter 2. Jesus was in the morphe of God, chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 7, he took the morphe of a slave Chapter 3 then, verse 10, we become together like him in his death, and now we become together like him in his body. Resurrection. He was God. He became a slave. We become like him in his death. We become like him in his resurrection. That's good news. Now, how is Jesus going to do that? He's going to do it according to a standard of power unlike anything else. It says here, by the power that enables him even. Pick up on that word even here. It means indeed. It means put it in the bank. It is true truth. A power unlike anything else. A power that enables him to subject all things to himself, the power that is going to be exalted on him in chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 where every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow in heaven, earth, under the earth. It is a power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Psalm 8, 6 is fulfilled here. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. God the Father has done that to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. When all things are subjected to Jesus, then Jesus himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all Jesus will set everything right. So what do we do in response to all this? Well, that's for next week, but let me just point out something in chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We stand firm in the midst of our real struggles. Stand firm. It's a plural command, which means that we don't do it alone. We stand firm together. We do it in the company of our brothers and sisters because there's times where one of us will be weak and we can help that one. There's another time where another person has a particularly strong example of of trust in the Lord and we all look to that example and seek to imitate it. This is what it means to live the Christian life here in this world of pain and struggle, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. In Carol's letter that she shared with you all, she talked about a Bishop Reynolds who who described two pictures, one of creation and one of consummation. Everything is done well as in creation, so in providence, and we shall see it when the end comes. But until then, we are incompetent judges of it, like a picture or a house in progress." What the bishop is saying is that there's creation and there's the end product and we're living right here in the middle and it looks a little bit like a picture that hasn't been finished or a house that hasn't been fully constructed yet. We see but in the middle of God's works, not from the beginning or from the end of them. We're not at creation. Imagine if you had been at creation, how would you live right now? if you had been there and saw what God did when He called the universe into existence, you'd be like, we don't have to worry about nothing. Right? That's what you would say. We would see how admirably the plan was laid out in the counsel of God. And imagine if we were brought to the end and we saw the end and we brought back to here, what would we do? We would go, we got nothing to worry about. Because in seeing the end, we see the crown of the action, the product to be glorious. As it is though, we are standing between both creation and the consummation and we wait and we trust that what God has said in his word about creation and consummation are so true that we will put our entire lives in his hands. We can trust him. In chapter 2, Paul has given us the example of the Lord Jesus. God has highly exalted him. In chapter 3, Paul has given us the example of himself that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And now here... He tells us how to struggle well. Jesus Christ himself will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, make these things so true to our hearts that we will love you with a passion, that we will have a rock-solid commitment to your purposes because the beginning tells us we got nothing to worry about the end tells us we got nothing to worry about so lord help us in the middle help us in the middle to love you trust you walk with you help that person here who's never put their faith in jesus to do so right now to find in christ all the treasures to forsake their sin And to look to Jesus to forgive them of that sin by what he did at the cross. So that they may too have citizenship in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.